a New Testament believer in a New Testament church. Isn't that an exciting concept? First Thessalonians chapter one, beginning in verse one, we read Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. I began this study thinking I was only going to do the first verse, but then out of deference to you, I decided to add just a little bit more to our Bible study. If your home is anything like my home, my wife keeps pictures of our family everywhere. We have pictures in the living room. We have pictures in the dining room. We have pictures in the hallway. We have pictures in our study. We have pictures everywhere. They capture memories, memories of our great grandparents. Mary and I both have pictures of our great grandparents, our grandparents and and our parents and our children and pictures transport us into the past and pictures generate gratitude in the present as we anticipate taking new pictures when families grow, because if families do anything Grandmothers and grandfathers become parents and parents have their children and their children have children. A normal, healthy family reproduces and we make every effort to raise our children to be good and decent. We want our children to be good examples of godly behavior. And if you grew up in a family like my family... You might categorize families in two categories. Less than perfect. And even more less than less than perfect. Well, the family of God is very much like that. We are perfect in Christ. But yet we live in an imperfect world and imperfect circumstances. And if you're struggling to fit into the family of God. In less than perfect circumstances, welcome. Warren Wearsby once remarked, and I rather like this remark, quote, I'd rather be a struggling Christian in an imperfect church than a perfect sinner outside the church. One of the church fathers said that the church was something like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the judgment on the outside, you couldn't stand the smell on the inside. But it's really true. It's snowing out there and it's cold out there. And we come in here and we gather where it's warm. But even in that gathering, it becomes a type and a picture because just like Noah's Ark became the instrument of deliverance for a church that was headed for a world that was headed for judgment, the church becomes an instrument, a mechanism whereby you are carried out of a world of darkness into a world of light. You're carried out of a world that's destined for judgment 
into a world where there's hope. And if you're like me, you came out of that world. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard the message of hope. You understood that you could experience forgiveness of sin. And you could have newness of life. And here we are. Here we are in a church. And by the way, take a deep breath. What is it that you smell? The fragrance of the person next to you or the odor of an incomplete life? You see, when we look at this little epistle of First Thessalonians, it was written before there was film or digital tape, but it contains the record of a passionate pastors providing tender instructions to a brand new church. By some counts, this church was less than months old. As a matter of fact, if you skip ahead just for a moment in chapter 1 to verses 6 and 7 and read ahead where Paul writes, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples, underline that word, you became a pattern or an example to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. Macedonia was the northern province of that peninsula that you and I call Greece. Achaia was the middle portion of Greece. And if you have a Bible and if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can follow where Israel turns into Turkey and you cross the Hellespont into the northern part of Greece. And that's exactly where Paul and Silas and Timothy had come from. Paul calls the church in Thessalonica examples, a model church, if you will. And because it is an example, it it has a pattern or distinguishing marks that will serve as a pattern or model to both the heathen population and the growing body of believers in Greece. In other words, it becomes a type and a picture of what a New Testament church looks like. You know, in the world of high fashion, the world parades models down a runway and the designers and the models set the tone and they provide direction for those people who want to look their best. And for the Christian. We have a righteous runway and we model Christ. And when we have a righteous runway and we model Christ, that doesn't mean that we grow our hair and we grow our beard and we wear a toga or we try to look like a first century Jew. We don't simply model Christ in a physical appearance, but we want to make a bold, fresh statement. You see, the reality is on the righteous runway, we walk in holiness in First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. We walk in love. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses nine and ten. We walk in honesty. That's First Thessalonians chapter four, verses eleven and twelve. We walk in hope. That's verses thirteen through eighteen. We walk in light. That's chapter five, verses one through 11. We walk in gratitude. That's chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We walk in obedience. That's chapter 5, verses 14 through 28. In other words, we begin to model the characteristics of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I need to tell you something. In Christ, you look marvelous. 
middle of God. You see, those of you who grew up in a world of conscious and aware that people are looking at you or staring at you, appearances become everything. But for the Christian, it's who you are in Christ. You know, a few things are more embarrassing for a top model than to trip on the runway. Elegance requires equilibrium. And it doesn't matter how nice your hair is, and it doesn't matter how nice your makeup is, and it doesn't matter how fabulous the fashion is. When the world slips right out from under you, it always seems to be when everybody is watching. But the strong church, the model church, will live by example. The model church will embrace evangelism. The the strong and healthy church will also have a strong and healthy work in the world. The, the, The strong and healthy church will have true and able ministers who love the Lord and who love the congregation. They will experience a strong faith, a strong love, which results in a strong hope. And in that strong hope, you'll have a desire to see Jesus Return. In other words, there's an expectation. And that expectation brings about a transformation of the way you think and the way you talk and the way you live. And so we understand something about the church at Thessalonica. If you forget anything else, And this is the only thing that you remember. Remember this. Paul preached the gospel with power. Which resulted in changed lives. The gospel has the ability to change a person's life. And each chapter of this epistle will end with a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for good reason. But we begin with the pastor's burden. Look at verse one again. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Paul writes the letter along with Silvanus. His name is also called Silas. He's called Silas in the book of Acts. Silvanus is the Latin name for Silas. Silas was a Jew who was well known in the Jerusalem church. And you'll remember after the breakup between Barnabas and Paul, Paul selects Silas and Timothy. And so we begin with these three people and a model church begins with principled pastors. In other words, the model church has a pastor who is both faithful to Christ and to the people. And so principled pastors provide principled leadership. And so if the ministry has to have men and women, if you will, who love the Lord, who are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how the little church of Thessalonica was planted Paul and Silas and Timothy go to the place that that you and I call Turkey. They're at a place called the Hellespont. And many of you will remember that Paul receives a vision from the man from Macedonia. And the man from Macedonia says, come over here. And shock of shock and surprise of surprises, the man from Macedonia is actually a woman. Lydia in Philippi. 
and Paul and Silas and Timothy go to Philippi and there they begin preaching the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And as they preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, they go into the marketplace and they encounter a woman who is demon possessed. And this demon possessed woman starts following him around, crying out, these men are great men of God. These men are great men of God. And Paul finally turns around and says, come out of her, you foul spirit. And the, the, the demonic spirit comes out of her. She is released. And now that she can't tell people's fortunes anymore, the business has a downturn. They have Paul and Silas arrested. They're thrown into the Philippian jail. There's an earthquake. After the earthquake, the Philippian jailer tries to kill himself, but he... He survives. He asks how he can be saved. Paul and Silas give him the gospel. He receives the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And because they're both Roman citizens, the magistrates at Philippi discover that they have beaten them prematurely and they beg them to leave and beaten and battered. They come through Apollonia and they come to um, past um, Amphipolis, and they finally arrive at Thessalonica. At Thessalonica, according to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, you can go there. They go there. Paul and Silas find the local synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, he preaches the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, it says, opening and alleging, that is out of the scripture, that Jesus Christ must needs suffer, that he rises from the dead, and that this Jesus is the Christ, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 3. And later, Paul will confess that when he was preaching the gospel to the children at Thessalonica in First Thessalonians, chapter two, verse two, he says, I came in much agony. You need to understand Paul and Silas, freshly beaten, come to Thessalonica and they still bear the the bruises and the welts on their back. They, you can see the scratches and, and the swelling on their faces where they have been mercilessly beaten. Picture Paul and picture Silas as your friend who has just been in a car accident and he's gone right through the windshield. When a person is swollen and cut, not very attractive, are they? But in that swollen, cut circumstances, they preach. And dozens of people come to the synagogue and then scores of people come to the synagogue. Then hundreds of people come to the synagogue as they hear the amazing story that we've been studying for the last two years of the, the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the statements of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they begin to hear a message of hope. A message about how the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness inside of you can disappear. How you can experience grace and mercy and love. How you can experience forgiveness. And they were beginning to be called out of the world and into Christ. And by the way, the city of Thessalonica was founded by a guy named Cassander. Cassander was a Greek general who followed Alexander the Great. After Alexander died in Babylon, 
he had no heir. And they, he, they said, who are you going to give the kingdom to, to? And he said, give it to the strong. And they split the kingdom into four halves. Ptolemy went to Egypt. Cassander went to Achaia and Macedonia. There was another general named Seleucus who took the area that you and I would call Iran and Iraq and Babylon. But Cassander was very, very close to Alexander. As a matter of fact, he was a part of Alexander's family in the sense that he married Alexander's half-sister. And Alexander's half-sister was named Thessaloniki. And so when they founded this city, they named it after her. And the city was along a route. There was a trade route that connected the east and the west. It was called the Via Ignatia. And it was a road that went literally from Rome up to the north, all the way to the northern part of Greece, all the way across the Hellespont into Asia and Syria and Israel and Egypt. It was part of this gigantic trade route. Imagine for a moment that you live somewhere near Denver. And in Denver, there are two main roads. There is I-70 that connects east and west. There's I-25 that connects the north and the south. If you get on I-25 and you go north, you're going to wind up in Wyoming. If you go south, you're going to wind up in New Mexico. If you get on I-70 and go west, where are you going to wind up in? Utah. If you go east, where are you going to wind up in? Kansas. It's the crossroads of people going everywhere. And so was Thessalonica. It was a harbor, but it was also a road. And in that crossroads of culture, there was great commerce. There was great wealth. People would come from all over the world. They would buy. They would trade. And with the buying and the trading also came trafficking in goods and services. Temples would grow and prostitution and sexual immorality was rampant. And in that culture... And in that particular society, it wasn't unusual for people to be closely connected with every kind of wickedness that you can imagine. And so they preached. And the way that Paul and Silas preached was they would go to the synagogue. Their plan of attack was to preach the gospel in the synagogue, drawing on the Old Testament scriptures to confirm the ministry and the message of Jesus. And as they preach, then they would preach the good news to the Gentiles and then they would go from house to house to house telling the story of Jesus. Now, we do things a little bit differently. We may not go into the synagogue and we may not go necessarily into house to house to house. We use radio and print and the Internet. But make no mistake about it. God used preaching and teaching. And it was preaching and teaching that brought the message of salvation to those who would believe. And many of them did believe. And some didn't believe. And after three weeks in the synagogue, the religious leaders became so angry and so upset that they drove Paul and Silas out of the city. 
As a matter of fact, they went to a, a man named Jason's house to try and find him. But Paul and Silas had already escaped. And Paul was making his way down to Athens where he would preach the gospel. And from Athens, he would go to Corinth. And from Corinth, he would preach the gospel. And as he was preaching the gospel in Corinth, after a few weeks, he sat down and he wrote this note that's right in front of you. This letter. And so you can imagine the church was brand new. It was like a brand new baby. And Paul already approves of the doctrine of the Trinity. He talks about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. He declares the ministry of the Holy Spirit in receiving the truth. He acknowledges their election in God in verse 4. He points to the fact of their conversion of turning from paganism to idolatry in verse 9 of chapter 1. He warns them about the wrath of God that's going to come upon the whole world to both the Jew and to the Gentile. And then he just Describes a tribulation that's coming to the world in First Thessalonians chapter three, verse three. And in, in, in spite of that, he exhorts them to live a holy life. And because he exhorts them that Christ is coming very, very soon, a lot of people quit their job. Because they figured, hey, if Jesus is coming back at any moment, why work? This makes no sense. And so Paul wanted to correct the reality that, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. And by the way, you need to live your life like Jesus could come back at any moment. But you need to pray and prepare as if Jesus is calling you to a lifetime of ministry. And so Paul points out the practical reality of working in order to make a living of praying and persevering and preaching a gospel that results in the transformation of a life. Now, that's the key concept. That becomes the key concept for you. You mean Paul preached and people believed and their hearts were changed and their minds were changed and their lives were changed? Yes. Just like some of you. Just like most of you. You were out there. You were living out there in blindness and darkness. You were you were living in a world that was destined to experience the judgment of God. You were living out there and the judgment of God was even resting on your own heart and your own soul. You deserved nothing less than hell. And you heard the story of Jesus and you you heard the story that he would forgive your sin and he would give you new life. He would give you grace and mercy. He would give you a second chance and that you didn't have to go to hell and that you could go to heaven. And they believed. And they became look at verse one. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. I like this because Paul doesn't simply write to the church at Thessalonica, but rather to the church of the Thessalonians. When Paul writes elsewhere, he'll say to the to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus. But here to this new church, this brand new, fresh out of the shoot church to the church of the Thessalonians, he describes them not simply as as the place or the city, but rather the people themselves. And by the way, that's what a church is. The word church, translated church, is ecclesia. It's it's a Greek word which means called out. And depending on how it was used in language, it could mean a called out assembly who gather together for whatever reason. 
As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, when a group of people would gather for political reasons, they were called ecclesia. When they would gather for social reasons, they were called ecclesia. When they gathered for, for uh, party reasons, they were called ecclesia. But now Paul calls them ecclesia. That means called out of the world of wickedness and darkness and sin and called together to be in God. That's what a real church is. The church is comprised of men and women who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In order for a church to be a church, the composition of that church must be born again, blood bought, Holy Spirit filled believers. And so the church are those men and women who are called out of the darkness and into the light, called out of death and into light. Now. Typically, people who go to church usually comprise one of two people, saved people and unsaved people. There must have been a time in your life where before you became a Christian, you gathered together in a church kind of a setting. With an empty and a dark heart. But for you, it wasn't a church. It didn't become a church until you recognized That you didn't belong out there, but that you belonged in here. Without people who are committed to Christ, you don't have a church. Paul writes to all the church and not simply a select group. He doesn't say to the church of the Thessalonians who happen to be left in charge. He isn't writing necessarily to the pastors or the leaders or the workers. He's writing to everyone. And a model church recognizes the participation of everyone. And we have to recognize an obvious truth. Building the church on a few people or a few leaders will ultimately result in a weaker church. When it's all Gino all the time, it makes for a weak church. And so the church can't be simply me and it can't simply be the pastors and it can't simply be the leaders. A New Testament church is a church where everyone participates and think about this for just a moment. If we refuse or if we ignore or if we neglect the gifts and callings of the people in the church, it will result in a weaker church. And so you become a member of this church, not simply when you go here and not simply when you give here. But when you go here and you give here and you serve here, that's membership. That's membership. You see, in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, Paul will write and say, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Every person who's born again is a part of the church. But you can't be the church by yourself. 
So we see the people's bond and we go to the presence of God. Look what it says at the end of verse one. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why that's important? The model church embraces God as the father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the full name given. Jesus is his earthly name that was given to him by his mom and dad. Clearly it was Yeshua or Hoshua. And then it was transliterated into the Greek, Isu, which becomes Jesus. And Christ is the title, anointed. So guess what? What you believe about God the Father and what you believe about God the Son becomes an important part of the confession of the relationship between the Father and the Son, which in part determines and defines the nature of the church. Here's what I'm saying. A church isn't a church unless it's in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen carefully. If a church doesn't have a proper view of the Father, then it can't have a proper view of the Son. And if it doesn't have a proper view of the Son, it won't have a proper view of the Father. There are many organizations that carry the name church. But you can't be a church without the Father and without the Son. The Father and the Son make possible a New Testament biblical church. The church is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the church is not in God the Father, and if the church is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it becomes simply a man-made monstrosity. It's just a man-made gathering. It's just a place where people meet. Now, don't get me wrong. Our building is used for a number of people and a number of purposes. We've had people come in and use our church to vote. But are they the church? No. If the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts come and meet in our church, are they the church? No. They might be people who gather and who come in here, but they're not the church. In order to be the church, you have to be men and women who have been called out of this world who have been made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what it says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives the twins grace and peace, grace, always preceding peace, but it's grace and peace. It's a it's a different kind of a grace. It's not a, a it's not just a a, a greeting from a social sense, it's grace and peace that come from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are moms and dads. Some of you mothers who have had children, when you have a baby and the baby comes out, what's the very first thing that you do? I'll tell you what I did. I count the fingers and the toes. I don't know why, because if, if there are no fingers or toes there, I'm still going to love this baby. But, but you just want to check. So you start counting one, two, three, four, five fingers, one, two, three, four, five toes. But you usually don't stop there. You make sure that the fingers are connected to the hands. You make sure that the toes are connected to the feet. You make sure that the feet are connected to the legs. You make sure that the legs are connected to the torso. You make sure that the torso is connected to the chest, the chest to the head. You want you want the whole baby. You want the whole baby. 
And when a pastor plants a church, when he's counting the grace and the peace, it's like counting the toes and the fingers on a baby. Because in order for a church to be a church, it has to experience grace and peace. By the way, the Greek word charis, which is the word grace, it describes the undeserved and unearned favor of God. No church can be strong without God's grace. And no church can be strong without God's peace. A church that doesn't have God's grace and a church that doesn't have God's peace can't be described as a healthy church. It certainly can't be described as a strong church. I want you just for a moment to imagine a church where there's little grace and little peace. It's like a child that only has a few fingers and a few toes. The text reads, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the kind of favor that comes from God. Its origin is centered and empowered by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace comes from God, the father through the Lord Jesus. It's undeserved, unearned favor and no one can call God the Father unless they're also willing to call Jesus Christ the Lord. If you're not willing to acknowledge the Father, and if you're not willing to acknowledge the Son, then guess what? You can't experience the grace of the Father, and you can't experience grace from the Son. You can't experience peace from the Father or peace from the Son. Remember, Jesus had told them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The word peace here is the word Irene. Charis, Irene. By the way, these two beautiful words were so beautiful that many people in the early church named their children Charis and Irene. Irene means bound, joined, woven together. It includes the concept of assurance and confidence and security. People would use the word Irene to describe the blessing, the love, the care of God. The word means to know and experience the guidance of God and the provision of God and the strength of God and the deliverance of God and the empowering of God and the blessing of God. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace in the world. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus is the source of peace. You know, this is what's interesting. People can come to church and they go, I just want a little peace. If you come to church and you want peace, but you're unwilling to abandon your sin. If you're unwilling to embrace the grace and peace of God, if you're unwilling to come to Christ, if you're unwilling to leave the world and enter into a new world of joy and grace and mercy, you'll leave the same way you came. Still troubled, 
The Lord will not bring peace to the heart apart from the work of God in Christ. In order to experience the peace of God, you must come to the God of peace. And so the New Testament church, the the strong church, the healthy church, experiences grace and peace. And look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Peace and praise and praying become essential ingredients for the strong, healthy church. The Lord God has ordained prayer as the medium whereby we experience his blessing and hear his voice and promote intimacy. Rarely does a week ever go by on my radio program that somebody doesn't call me and say, why should I pray? I mean, what does it matter? God knows everything. God knows everything about me. God knows my heart. God knows my need. God knows everything. Why in the world should I have? Why should I have to say it? Well, because it isn't about you giving a laundry list to God. Prayer becomes the mechanism whereby you cultivate friendship and relationship with God. Do you remember the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 21, 22? And all things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. In John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my word abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done to you. So why has God chosen prayer as the medium whereby he acts on our behalf? For the same reason that God has ordained communication Amongst yourselves. It's talking, sharing, communicating. Prayer requires our presence. In order to pray, you have to be there. You have to pay attention and have some affection, some thought, some word. A strong church encourages its people to pray because prayer then opens the door to God, but it also acknowledges dependence upon God. And then the passion to work. Look at verse three. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, our father. We don't work to get saved. But when you're saved. When your mind has changed and your heart has changed and your passions have changed, your motivation changes. You know what I know about every single mother? Before they become a mother, they actually get up in the morning. But when you become a mother, your motives change. You get up for the baby. You don't just simply get up for yourself. You get up for the baby. You fix breakfast, not just simply for yourself, but for the baby. A strong church is motivated, stirred, aroused, emboldened to do something. Don't be afraid of the word work. You know, when I was a kid growing up, there was a dumb television show on called Dobie Gillis. And Dobie Gillis, there was this guy named Maynard G. Krebs. He would later become famous as Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. But in this dumb movie, whenever you would say the word work, he would like have a panic attack. He couldn't even say the word work without it getting caught in his throat. 
And some people, when you mention the word work, they automatically want to attach it to salvation. And I'm not suggesting even for a moment that we're saved by works or even perfected by works, but saved people work. Saved people bring their salvation to a place where they're unwilling to just simply keep it to themselves. Paul points out three things that stimulate, incite, urge, prompt participation on the part of the church. He talks about a faith that stirs the believer to do something. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, this is a faith rooted and grounded in a deep conviction, not simply in the facts surrounding the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it's a faith that produces a new motive and a new willingness to serve. And then he talks about love that labors, your labor of love. Faith works, but love goes the distance. Love goes the extra mile. Love doesn't replace faith, but rather it becomes an expression of faith. The word translated labor is very interesting. It's the Greek word kopow. It reminds me in the English, you know, kapow. But it means toil. It means to labor or work to the point of exhaustion. Women, ladies. When you're giving birth to a baby, piece of cake, or is it is there a reason why it's called labor? It's hard work. This particular labor meant to the point of exhaustion. It meant more than just working up a sweat in our culture. People who work. Some people work out and when they're working out, they want to come to that place where they feel the burn. Because they know that, that a trans, uh, there's something changing in their body. And so here, they have experienced a love for themselves that motivate them to do something different. And you see, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a human being, a person who's experienced the love of God for themselves and they've experienced the love of Jesus Christ for themselves. And because they've experienced the love of God and because they've experienced the love of Christ, it motivates them to go forward in Christ. And so the love that he's talking about is that very famous word, agape. It isn't the love that the world offers. It isn't a conditioned love or a conditional love. It's a love that motivates you to do things and be someone who is different. And this is what Paul meant when he says the love of Christ constrains me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge if he died for all, then we were all dead and that he died for all and that and they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul's it's Paul's way of saying once I discovered that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and that he was alive, I couldn't live the same way anymore after that. And there was a time in your life 
where you could mentally and intellectually acknowledge the historical facts surrounding the life and the death and the, of the, and the resurrection of Jesus. But then there came a time in your life where Jesus rose from the dead and you recognized that that resurrection resulted in, in your forgiveness, in grace for you, in peace for you, in mercy for you. The sentence of hell was removed from you. And you woke up one morning and you said, I can't live the way that I used to live. I can't think the way that I used to think. And a hope that produces patience. We, we might think of patience here as steadfastness. We're not talking about a passive resignation, but rather an active constancy in the face of difficulty. In other words, this is an enduring hope. William Barclay writes, quote, it is the spirit which can bear things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope, unquote. We're not talking about a holy or a religious optimism. We're talking about a confident certainty concerning the promises of Jesus Christ. Hope in the New Testament is always about the future. But it isn't uncertainty. It's certainty. In the world in which you grew up in. Someone might say to you, hey, what do you hope you get for Christmas? And you may or may not get it. But hope in the New Testament is the certainty that when God makes a promise and Jesus Christ makes a promise, that that promise is going to come true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul writes about those three. And now these three remain faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. In 1 Thessalonians, in the opening chapter, Paul isn't speaking about mere faith or mere hope or mere love, but a faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that endures. And you know what this becomes? It becomes the motive for being a New Testament Christian. Because if you're a New Testament Christian in a New Testament church, then your motives have changed. You're born of the Spirit of God. You have hope in Christ. You've experienced the love of Christ. You've experienced the confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is going to make good on everything that He's promised. And look what it says in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Election looks back to God's choice of certain individuals to be his children. Predestination looks forward to the destiny that he's planned for them. And by the way, election and predestination is a word in the New Testament scriptures that never, ever describes an unsaved person. Election is always used of people who believe. And people who know. And people who've experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God and peace with God. Ronald Ward writes, quote, the preaching of the gospel with spiritual conviction and converting power had shown by its effect on the listeners. They were among the elect 
for we know states the ultimate reason for the thanksgiving. Undoubtedly, they gave thanks for the work as evidence of faith, for the drudgery as evidence of love, as the endurance as evidence of a hope that they really felt. But all this itself was evidence for what was prior their election. In other words, their salvation became manifest in what they really did with each other. And now we begin to see a New Testament church. The word translated election, by the way, means that the beloved brethren are selected, chosen by God. God has selected, chosen them. But remember what he's chosen them for. To leave an old life and enter into a new life. To leave wickedness and embrace righteousness. To leave a world that's destined for judgment and to embrace a world that's going to be saved. The ancient Hebrew Jeremiah wrote, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. When did he first love me? He's always loved you. He's always prepared for you. He's always planned for you. I've noticed that pregnancies come in two forms, planned and the other kind. Planned and unplanned. But your election and your selection and your defection from the world has been planned by God. And Paul wrote, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, what every church should be is what every Christian should be. Elect, that means born again, exemplary, imitating the right people, enthusiastic, sharing the gospel with others and expectant. That means daily looking for Jesus to return. And we begin to see the marks. Paul preaches the gospel. And people are changed. So you can imagine it's a powerful gospel. It's a gospel attached to the Father and the Son. It's a gospel that acknowledges the Father and the Son. It's a gospel that communicates grace and peace. Harold Okenga, a preacher from a long time ago, wrote, quote, That gospel is sufficient now. To change the lives of heathen into Christians, of homes from debased dwelling places to habitations of love, of communities from cesspools of iniquity to testimonies of righteousness. Let the gospel be preached and believed and the transformation will come. You come to church. Not simply to escape the world. We come to church because we are the church. We come to church because we're connected to the Father as well as the Son. We come to church in order to embrace grace, share peace, 
praise the Lord, encourage one another in the mutual promises that we've received in Christ. In order for a church to be a New Testament church, it has to occupy, be occupied with New Testament believers. In order to be a New Testament believer, you need to be connected to the Father through the Son by the grace of Jesus, which results in peace with God. And now all of a sudden in the first four verses of a brand new church that only had Paul preach three weeks in a row. We see something amazing. We see something startling. That the church in 51 A.D. consists of people who have been changed from the inside out by the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, still changes people's hearts still transforms families, creates churches, which results in a transformation of the community. And this is only the first four verses we have to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so excited when a new baby comes. Lord, we rejoice in new life. We count the fingers and we count the toes. We rejoice in a baby because we know that a baby is going to grow up. And a baby is going to establish his or her own family. And the legacy is going to continue into the future. And Heavenly Father, as we witness the birth of the church in Thessalonica. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of what it means to be a church that loves you. A church connected to the Father and the Son. A church that embraces grace and peace. And a church that counts on each other to do a wonderful work. Lord, I pray for that person who comes here and gives here. But for whatever reason has remained disconnected. Lord, I pray that you would communicate in their heart... What it means to be connected to the body, a life giving body. Lord, I pray that you would reveal their gifts and callings. And Lord, I pray that you would connect them in a life giving way. Lord, I'm counting the fingers and I'm counting the toes. Lord, it's important to me that the whole body be here. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.